So this morning we continue our study in Proverbs. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 6 starting in verse 20, and we'll be taking that all the way through the end of chapter 7. So we've got quite a bit of a ground to cover uh, this morning as we get into this issue. And this, this issue of uh, the father's admonition to his son about adultery, um, if you've been with us, you know that this is something that's been mentioned a couple times already. In uh, chapter 2, verses 16 through 19, we saw... Uh, the father warning his son, and then in chapter 5, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, we saw that, that uh, warning there. And so that's kind of where we pick up uh, this morning, is again on this issue of the danger or the folly of adultery. As I'm sure you're aware, our society uh, is becoming increasingly unashamed, uh, unembarrassed by its promotion of various sins, and adultery is one of those unfortunately. Um, one of the study guides that I was looking at this week in preparation for this study, the, the writer of the study guide noted a slogan that he had seen on a, on a matchmaking website that said, life is short, have an affair. Uh, so that, that's kind of a, a mantra um, that's out there. And while all unbelievers may not agree with that uh, slogan, the, the general motto concerning this issue seems to be that if you can get away with it, then, then do it. No, no harm, no foul type of mentality. Um, well, as you know, the scriptures speak completely against that type of, of thinking. And they stand in direct opposition to humanity's godless reasoning on this issue. And so in continuing this address to his son, and then we'll see here also future generations within his family, the father, again, he highlights here with vivid clarity the danger and folly of adultery. You can see there on your note sheet how I'm kind of breaking this up. Uh, the first couple sections will deal with the folly and danger of adultery, and then the last section will come to look at the father's plea on how to avoid it. So we're not necessarily going to work by that uh, just starting at verse 20 and then working all the way down. I'm going to kind of break it up sectionally and then come back to some parts of it as we uh, try to put that together. So the first section that we're going to look at, we're going to pick up in verse 25 in chapter 6 and read down through verse 35. And that section is entitled, The High Price of the Unchaste Wife. So maybe if I, if I could have somebody read um, <clears throat> verses 25 through 35 here in Proverbs 6. Will, thank you. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So he is who so is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though he multiply gifts. Okay. 
So very powerful statements that are given there. And just as we start here in verse 25, such a good lesson for us to remember, not only on the issue of adultery, but sin in general and where it, where it takes place. In verse 25, the father gives this admonition to the son, do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelids or her eyelashes. And again, what, what a massive point this is for us to consider as we think about this um, warning that is given here. And that is this, evil actions, in this case adultery, flow forth from evil desires, right, or evil lusts. And we see the scriptures uh, talk about this in this issue of, of coveting, for example, which where does, where does coveting start, right? Where does it begin? In the heart, right? You, you see something, you begin to contemplate that within your heart, and then you act upon what you have been thinking about. So Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Same thing that he's dealing with here in uh, Proverbs 6. Familiar with the passage in uh, Matthew 5. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right? So that's where it begins. And then James says something very similar and very helpful as we think through this in James 1, 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And then watch the progression of this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So such a vivid illustration in that. You just think about the whole process of conception, birth, growing up, dying. And you have all of that together. But the point that James is bringing out here is where did it begin? Where did that life of sin or sinful intention begin? It began at conception, which was brought forth by his own desire. So the father pleads with the son to guard his heart, right? It's a good admonition that Will gave us a couple weeks ago to invest in your heart, to guard it, to watch over it, to make sure that you're taking care of it. And in this case, he tells his son this because this woman is going to try to draw you in. She's going to do things to try to get you into this illicit relationship. Um, you, You notice here the father shows that she's accentuating her beauty which is what's being referred to when he says, don't let her capture you with her eyelashes or her eyelids, right? There's things that she's doing to try to draw you in, and your heart must be guarded before that woman comes to you, or you're going to be extremely susceptible to her advances. And again, just as we think about sin generally, we want to make sure that we understand that. We want to take time daily to invest in our hearts, right? We want to make sure that we're guarding our hearts, even when that temptation isn't before us, right? We don't want to necessarily just be reactive to temptation, right? We want to be proactive. 
that our hearts are guarded already so that when that temptation comes, we're prepared for battle, so to speak, right? That we're not just simply reacting to the things that are, that are coming at us. So he gives him this admonition in verse 25 about not desiring her beauty in your heart. And then he backs up that admonition with argumentation in, in the rest of this chapter in verses 26 through 35. Or in other words, he's saying to his son, here's why you must not let that happen. So don't desire her beauty in your heart because if you do, my son, here's the path that's going to follow from that. And he begins in verse 26 here by contrasting the price of a prostitute and the price of an unchaste wife. And by the way, neither of these is a good price, right? So don't miss the analogy that the father's trying to show forth here. Um, The prostitute, he's just showing the difference between these two women. And essentially what he's saying is this, the prostitute will cost you a meal. This unchaste wife will cost you your life. So he's showing the difference here. Both are costly, but one is far more so. And so guard your heart, my son. And the wording here in verse 26 and also in verses 27 and 28, again, are extremely vivid. Uh, Verse 26, he's using this imagery here. If you notice, the price of a, a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life, right? You get this picture of a predator going after its prey. Uh, which is never a good thing. Maybe you've seen those shows where you know, you're flipping through the channels, you get a Discovery Channel, and you see the lion waiting in the thickets, and the zebras are just, hey, look, water. And you're just like, man, this is going to be bad. I shouldn't even watch this, right? Because you just know how it's going to end, right? This isn't, the zebras aren't going to prance away and everybody's rejoicing, right? That's not why they're, they're, they're showing it. And, and you see that, but it's such a vivid picture for us of the reality of sin and the temptation that can come upon us that quickly. And therefore, we must be guarded in those things. And so he's bringing that out. This is what that that unchaste wife is like. She's seeking to hunt down a precious life. She's on the prowl. She's seeking to lay a snare to capture her unsuspecting prey. So verse 26, we see the penalty for adultery here that the father brings out to the son, that it will cost him his life. And then notice in verses 27 and 28, the father shifts from the severity of the penalty to its inevitability, right? It's inevitability. Verses 27 and 28, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Right? These are rhetorical question, questions, right? meaning that the answer is so obvious uh, that it need not be stated. It's implied what the, what the answer is. But I love what the father's trying to do here. here. He's trying to draw, draw his son into thoughtful consideration of this issue. Right? He's not just standing back lecturing him and uh, this is just kind of flying over his son. He's asking questions in this, to try to get his son to think through. My son, can this happen? Think, think about that situation. If you carry fire there, my son, do you think that's going to allow you to not be burned? Or if you walk on hot coals, do you think your feet are going to escape the heat and the pain that, that come from that? 
He doesn't want his son to simply be passive in his listening, but an active participant thinking through with the father the inevitable consequences of such an action with this unchaste wife. And again, just principally, I think that's another great reminder for us, is that we are to be actively listening to the word of God, right? To make sure that we're really drinking in what the scriptures are saying. We've got to guard ourselves against just, um, I just need to do my Bible reading today and check that off and then move on and go do something else. We really need to sit and think about what it is that we're, that we're reading in whatever section of scripture that we are, we are in. Uh, so this, the father is drawing the son in here to help him to think about the folly of what this action will produce. And then in verse 29, uh, he relates the one who goes into the unchaste wife with the one he has just been describing in verses 27 and 28. So essentially he's saying to him, as surely as the man will be burned who does such things, so too will the one be punished who goes after this this woman, um, or the consequences of what this will look like for him. Um, so he relates it right back and shows him the inevitability of that punishment. And then he goes on here in verses 30 and 35, and he shifts to the unending nature of the adulterer's pain. So notice here in verses 30 through 35, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. And it's interesting here how in verses 30 and 31, he he gives this temporary social stigma of the thief who steals in order to satisfy his physical hunger. And, And what the father is bringing out there, again, is that people can relate to that, right? Not condone it. That's, that's wrong. You shouldn't steal, but we can relate to that. You can think of being that hungry that you're brought into a situation where you think your only uh, option left is to steal in order to keep yourself alive. And so the father brings that out. As a matter of fact, Agar, at the end of Proverbs 30, when he asks God, he says, you know, give me two things. You know, don't, don't feed me with the food that is necessary for me. Don't let me become too poor lest I steal. Right, So Agar is even recognizing there's a temptation there for me to do that if I get to the place of such physical hunger. So the person has to eat, and in this person's mind, it's seemingly the only option left. And while this act is a crime, is a sin, people's attitudes toward it aren't as strong. They're not as repulsed because of the circumstances which prompted it. Nevertheless, The father goes on here, if he is caught, he must fully compensate for his crime. That's what it means. Sevenfold is another way of saying he's going to fully compensate for what he has done. And it's going to be very costly. Verse 31 shows us. But what the father is trying to show here, the point that he's trying to bring out, is that while it will be very costly for that thief, it's still doable. He can still pay back. He can still compensate for the crime that he has committed for his wicked action. 
And then the contrast of that is, however, not so with the man who goes after the unchaste wife. Uh, The thief stole the bread out of necessity to satisfy his physical hunger. He had a legitimate need that he felt needed to be met, right? This man, however, is driven out of his lust, right, to satisfy his sexual hunger, right? It's, it's a want, it's a lust, it's a desire, unlike the thief who saw it as his only option in order to satisfy himself. So the thief will not be despised by the community because of his situation. There may be some shame there for the theft, but the community will be able to restore him. This man, however, will be scorned by the community. He'll be disgraced. He'll be dishonored. The thief can compensate, but this man cannot. And that's what the father's trying to bring back here. Again, it's interesting how he uses these two situations of the prostitute and the unchaste wife both of them sinful, but he's showing the greater and the lesser of those two. And then the thief, again, wrong, shouldn't be done, but to highlight the magnitude of the one who commits such an action and what the consequences will be for it. And then he goes on and he says the reason for that is because of what we see in verses 34 and 35, that no matter what you try to do to pay this man back, to pay the, the husband back, of the unchaste wife, he is not going to receive it, son. Right? He won't be satisfied. Furious. Uh, um, jealousy makes a man furious. And so he, he lays this out very clearly. The thief could compensate for his wicked action. There's no compensation that this jealous husband will take that will satisfy him other than the death of this man. Indeed, jealousy makes a man furious. Uh, We see a few passages that relate to that. Proverbs 27, 4, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? And then another passage, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6, Love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as death as the grave. Wow. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Right? So he's just, again, as I worked through this section, I just thought, man, how vivid the father is trying to paint this picture for his son. He's just trying to put this in as clear as terms as possible to show him the utter folly of this decision that this man would make. And then we also see as we, as we bounce into chapter 7 and we go down to uh, verses 22 and, and 23, the father reiterates here the high price of going after this woman. Chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. Somebody wants to read that for us. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know what it will cost him. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Okay, good. So, uh, you know, in, in verse 22 there, you have that phrase, all at once. And it shows this hasty decision that this gullible young man made without reflecting on the cost of what he was doing. And isn't that true of all sin? 
We don't take time to consider the outcome of our actions, right? Afterwards, we're like, that was, so, I'm a fool for thinking that, saying that, doing that, whatever the case may have been. But we don't take time on the front end so that we don't walk into those situations that will <clears throat> cost us more than we realize. So this, this young man here in chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, we see that his lustful desire just dominates over any moral and spiritual sensibility. And the father here, again, this, this aspect of the clarity, the vividness of it, the father here, he interprets and he illustrates this horrific scene by comparing this young man's situation to that of three animals who are headed toward death. Right? These animals here, you have the ox, the stag, or the deer, and the bird. They don't see this trap that they're walking into and the outcome of it, which is going to be death. And so again, he vividly portrays for his son what the outcome will be for those who go after the unchaste wife. And, and as we think about this first section, you know, again, the wonderful thing about this is the father's loving warning to his son. Right? He really wants him to think and consider the outcome of his actions, not, not just the immediate consequences of it, but long term. What is this going to mean uh, for the son? And as we think through that, again, it should be another great reminder for us that the warnings that our Lord gives to us are acts of love toward us. Right? Every every parent can relate to that as you give instruction to your child or your children, right? You're trying to help them to see that this is going to be bad, right? This will not be a good thing to do. And so you take all the pains necessary and you try to paint that in as a clear of picture as possible to help them to see that. And such is true with, with our Lord, uh, just giving us his word, his commands, knowing what's best for us as his children, wanting us to walk in the blessing of his righteousness rather than the folly of unrighteousness or, or disobedience. Okay? All right. So that's all for that first section. Before we move on, yeah, I was going to open it up to some questions. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering how are we supposed to frame uh, like the interpretation of these warnings like, are we supposed to take it literally, even though we know that, like, you know, people commit adultery all the time, they're not walking around being scorned by the community, so... Yeah. Um, you know, we can say these things yep. to our kids, and we can take them from, from our father. Yes. Um, but how, yeah, in what sense are we supposed to understand this and apply it? Yeah, yeah, well, I think driving everything back while societies and cultures can look different and their acceptance of things, um, the character of God does not change. Right? So I think pointing them back to the one unchangeable thing of here's who God is and here's how he sees these things. Right? So the, the focus shouldn't be much on how does the community respond to this, but how is God you know, seeing this? Uh, because you're right. I mean, our, our culture in which we live, um, our sense of morality continues to weaken. Right? Um, I, I love when I'm meeting with the Joy Fellowship and they, you know, they walk me back four or five decades, and here's what things looked like at, at that point, right? 
and and they sh and they show, hey, here's how. Yeah, I got some of them here. Thank you, Happy Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Here's here's what things you know kind of look like, and here are the shifts that happened. Um, so that's interesting. But one thing that we do have is the unchangeable character of God and the unchangeable word of God, that the consequences for disobedience are still massive um, in that. So I think we can draw our children back to that reality um, as well and, and helping them to see that. And again, that focus on the reality that these are loving, these warnings are uh, an act of love, um, you know, and explaining those things. Here's, here's why mommy and daddy are telling you these things, right? Because we don't want to see you walk down that road. Yep. Well, back to the misery of that, how about when there are times that you really take everything into consideration, then you yep. make a decision, and the first thing you know, as soon as it's out, it peters out in your face. Right. So the grace of God is sufficient. Yes. But we are never immune to uh, not making any bad decisions. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's impossible to see the future. Yes. I mean, I know I used to play chess, and I know some chess players, like, after the seventh move or so early in the game, they can tell you how it's going to end. Yes. Well, as a Christian, we're never like this. We're yeah. We're at a place where we can be like the, the ultimate authority on all things. I mean, sure, I've been in the Lord many years, but I, that doesn't count, really, because there's still way more to learn. Than yes, know. absolutely. So. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Daniel? Um, I had two things. Um, where's that verse where it says, guard your heart? Proverbs 4.23. That's one that Will hit on a couple of weeks ago. Um, then, um, I think that you quote, did you quote the first yeah, the verse in um, Matthew where it says, don't look on the person who's That That's right. And so it seems to me like here, Yes. Before God. Yeah, that's exactly and right. So it continues to be like when I'm by myself in my room and nobody's around, it's I can go back and look at my heart. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, that's right. And saying it daily, take time daily to guard your heart. Yes. I thought that was really good. Yeah, good. You know, so, so to, because it starts in the heart. That's exactly right. You got it. Yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. Yes, Amber. So yeah. Yeah. Kind of off topic, no, it's okay. Just thinking about the jealousy. Yeah. Um, yeah. It makes me think. Well, it's showing us that because Christ, Christ is the, the groom and the church is the bride. Yes. Just thinking about how Christ must be jealous a lot because <laughs> we have a lot of idols. <laughs> right. Right. But he's so patient with us. Yeah. That's the amazing thing about it. I mean, you think of the totality of who God is and his attributes. And, yeah, because you think about jealousy, right? Yeah. The and Lord. In a sense, this stuff's the blessing so that we can see that. Yes. Of, of who, who God is. Yep. Yeah, I think of like Jeremiah 2 where the, the people are rebuked for drinking from broken cisterns that can hold no water and forsaking the fountain of living waters, right? So that just, that, that again, that reasoning aspect of it is, You've traded that for this. And you see a lot of that in Proverbs as well as 
you know, you don't walk away from the blessing that, that God has, has given to you. Yeah. He did, indeed. And you see that all throughout the scriptures, that he is, he is jealous for his people and unspeakably patient with all of our strayings and waywardness. And Yeah, good. Okay, let's, let's move into the uh, second uh, point there on your notes, uh, the unchaste wife's seductive tactics. And, and this section covers verses... 6 through 21 in chapter 7. So um, let's go ahead and read that, if somebody wouldn't mind, taking uh, chapter 7, verses 6 through 21. Kyle, thank you. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youth, a young man lacking sense, Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, widely apart. She is loud and wayward, her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home, for he has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, Full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Uh, so verse 6, just starting there, um, as Will mentioned last week, and I mentioned in the opening lesson of, of Proverbs, uh, that w- what we see through this book is one of the best ways to learn is by observation. Right? It's by, by looking and thinking through things. And that's what the father does here. He relates to his son what he has learned through observing the conduct of this senseless young man and this unchaste wife. And again, the father sets the scene here with this detailed imagery that we see in verses uh, 6 through 9. And, you know, as you, if you only had those verses, if you kind of had to say, hey, how do you think the rest of the story is going to play out? Let me give you the introduction, verses 6 through 9. Now, you write the rest of the story. I think probably all of us are going to come that this is going to end badly, right? Nobody's like, oh, and he came to his senses and he turned away. I mean, just all the ingredients are there for something really bad to happen, right? He's with the group, then he's not with the group. He's headed down the wrong road, uh, the wrong time of day, and things of that nature. And it's just, it, it has the setting for something to end badly. And what the father wants his son again to learn from this observation of his just even up to this point in verse 9 is to make sure that you guard yourself, to think about the steps that you're uh, about to take before you actually take them. Because what we're going to see is temptation can come upon you very quickly and very unexpectedly. 
you know, there's nothing in verses 6 through 9 that would lead us to believe that this young, naive man was looking to engage with this adulterous woman, that, that he himself was kind of on the prowl. Rather, what we, as it's portrayed here, is this young man who's this unsuspecting victim who is about to be preyed upon. But he's portrayed also here as one who's not thinking about his actions and is putting himself in potentially compromising situations. Uh, It was generally known in these days that this type of woman would typically come out at this type of hour uh, that's being addressed here, seeking a mate. And we see, as the father's observing this, he sees this young man with the group of the rest, and then he sees him go off by himself. And again, I think just principally again here, you could think, oh, for a discerning godly friend to have been walking with him in that moment uh, to have helped him. And I'll say more about that on the next point on, on how to avoid this type of woman and sin in general. But you, you just have all the ingredients for setting himself up and putting himself in a compromising situation. Uh, the hour in which he's walking alone, twilight, dark, uh, evening time, and the scriptures paint for us over and over again the reality that wickedness abounds in, in darkness. Um, Romans 13, 11 through 13 says, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. And the implication is there that typically takes place at nighttime. So again, you have this setting here that is just disastrous for this naive young man and what he is walking into. Uh, So the setting itself, before any type of interaction happens, shows us that all the ingredients are there for something very bad to happen. And then notice in verse 10, the father kind of uses this word here, and behold. And and that is just kind of like all of a sudden, right? Just just walking down the street, boom, this woman meets him. And, And there it is. And again, just a great reality of guarding our hearts so that when temptation comes, we're able to fight against it, whatever that temptation may be. And as this woman is described here in verse 10, we see what she looks like on the outside and also what she looks like on the inside. Outwardly, she's dressed very provocatively, appealing to the fleshly lust of this young man. Inwardly, she's cunning, conniving, plotting evil in her heart. And then it's interesting here that the father kind of breaks away from that and gives us a broader view of, of this woman, just kind of in society. She's loud. She's wayward. She's a woman seeking attention from others. She's, she's discontent with the relationship that God has given her with her husband, seeking to fulfill her lust with whomever she can entice. She's ever on the prowl, lying in wait for her next victim. So he lays all of that out to show what this woman is like in other, in other contexts. And then he goes on and he shows the brazenness of this woman. She seizes the young man and kisses him. She's very bold 
Uh, that word seizes there is this, is this forceful engagement by this woman. It amplifies how aggressive she is toward him. Um, and again, just generally as we think about sin, that is the reality of it at times. Those temptations come on strong at times, and we need to be guarded uh, against them. So we're told, we're, told, we're told what she looks like, both outwardly and inwardly, what her general disposition is, and now we hear what she has to say. And I want you to notice here, in this whole interaction that we'll see, you only hear one voice, and it's hers. The son is not responding at all. And what we see here in verses 14 through 21 is that this woman appeals to every physical sense of this young man. I want you to notice this as we walk through this. First, she starts out by appealing to his taste in verses 14 and 15. She says, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. This woman has made peace offerings, and Leviticus 7 tells us that when this type of offering was made, the sacrifice that accompanied it must be eaten the same day. And so what she's doing here, she's inviting this young, naive man in to join her with this delicious food that must be eaten this day. Uh, There's this sense of urgency that goes along with this invitation. It can't wait until tomorrow. There's no time to ponder this. We must act upon this and think of the benefit of it. Think of what you can gain from this. So she appeals first to his taste. And then next in verse 16, we see her appealing to his sense of sight and touch. Look at verse 16. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. The coverings that are mentioned here would have been of the softest material that could be used to provide the comfort when one was reclining to eat. It was very common back in this culture to actually recline when you ate, unlike us where we pull up chairs and we sit down and and we eat. Here they would recline, and so they would, if you had something really nice and soft to lay on, man, it's just like now you're comfortable where you're sitting. And that's what she's appealing to here. These coverings that she's referring to here. Hey, look at this banquet that I have laid before you. Think of the comfort that you'll have while you're eating it, while you're enjoying that. She's showing how comfortable he he will be in her home. And then in addition to that, Egyptian linen was thought to be of the finest linen, the most beautiful to look at. A delicious meal, comfort beyond your imagination, beautiful things to look at. And then in verse 17, she appeals to his sense of smell. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. And the spices that are mentioned here are important for two reasons. One, they were only owned by the wealthy, right? So, so again, just all of these things that our flesh lusts after... She's laying before this young man and just showing him the, how beautiful this would be if he, if he would come in. These were not common spices that all people had. And the reason for that, because merchants had to go long distances in order to get them, so they were very costly. So this woman is wealthy, which again is very appealing to the flesh. And the other reason those spices are important is because they were aphrodisiacs, that is, smells to stimulate sexual desire. So, man, it is just, 
her, her lustful table, so to speak, is set. And she desires that he come in and take his fill. And so she lays out the scene, and now she makes her proposition. Yes? Go back a couple Yep. Yep. Talks about a peace offer. Yes. Yep. Well, when, when, when you go back to, yes, there is a sense of hypocrisy because when you go back to Proverbs 2, it talks about this type of woman forsaking the covenant of her God, right? Um, so, yeah, there's definitely a sense of hypocrisy that is accompanied uh, with that. But more importantly, I think the, the point that um, the father is trying to get at is what would have accompanied that peace offering was the necessity for that sacrifice to be eaten immediately, um, and so she's appealing to, again, the aspect of food, sight, touch, all those things that are, that are accompanied there. So she now lays out this proposition to this young man. And Kyle read that earlier from verses 18 through 20. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. My husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him at at full moon, he will come home. So she starts here by explaining first the longevity of pleasure that they can have. That is, let us take our fill of love till morning, right? let's, Let's take our time with this. Let us enjoy this to its fullest. And then she appeals as well. She says, we can do this without fear, removing probably the last obstacle that was in this young man's heart. Are we going to get caught, right? No chance, the unchaste wife replies. My husband, he's gone on a long journey, and he's not coming back until full moon, which the, the thought behind that was at full moon, it was easier to travel from long distances because you were traveling both night and day, and a full moon would give you brighter light so that you could do some traveling there. And uh, so the, the implication would have been, you know, the, full, the, the moon's not even close to being full, right? We got time. There, there's nothing, there's no chance that uh, we're going to get caught in this situation. So, man, just the table is set for this young, naive man. All these warning signs are there, but he hasn't taken heed to these things. And again, I, I think as we think through this section in particular, hopefully you can see such a clear connection between this scene and the scene in the Garden of Eden. Because sin and its enticements have not really changed toward us. Where Satan enticed Eve with the lust of the flesh and promised that only good would come out of this and nothing bad would happen, you're not going to surely die. Don't worry about that, Eve. And this woman is seducing this young man by trying to get him to believe that his deeds, his his actions, that they won't have consequences. And she's succeeding which is what verse 21 goes to show us. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. And what's interesting here is that in verse 21, there seems to be some type of hesitancy from this young man because it says that she uses much seductive speech. So it wasn't just like, hey, you should come in, and the young man's like, okay, Right? And he just walks right in. I mean, she's just going on here. It wasn't just a couple of words and, and he could figure this out. But ultimately, she prevails. 
And all that pleasure of that one night, verse 23 says, cost him his life. Um, So again, for us, just again should paint the reality of the danger of sin in its many different ways that it seeks to appeal to us and the necessity to guard ourselves because what I want to look at now is, okay, how do we avoid this? All of us are susceptible to this in various ways, whether they be much more subtle than this unchaste wife or whether they be as as broad and as bold as her. And so the, the father tells the son, what is going to be the antidote to avoiding this woman? And to conclude with that, I want you to look with me at chapter 6, verses 20 through 24, to begin with. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your, notice the connection here, bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, They will watch over you, and when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. So you see, there's the antidote. My son, take in my words, consider them, ponder them, think upon them, because when you do, when you're When you're walking, and I love just the broadness that the Father paints here. When you walk, they're going to lead you. When you lie down, they'll watch over you. And when you awake, they'll talk with you. Right? It's just a beautiful picture of this is what will happen. So as you're you're walking by the way, my son, and you come across the Word of God that you have implanted in your heart, that you've bound on your heart, will be there to guide you and instruct you and lead you in that path of righteousness that you need. And then going into chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Store them up. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister. And call insight your intimate Friend, What did that young man need as he was walking along along the road? He needed an intimate, godly friend to come alongside him. And that's what the Father is showing him. Here is what the Word of God is for you as you walk through life. And again, the purpose to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And then in verse 24, And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Um, so, again, focusing back in on the necessity of storing up the Word of God in our heart. And I know we don't have much time left here. Um, but let me just give two points of application that I, I think will be helpful. And these won't be new for you. Um, but I think if we're honest, we probably don't apply it as much as we ought to. And that is the memorization of the Word of God and therefore meditation upon the Word of God. Because that's what the Father is bringing out here as that word dwells in you richly, so to speak, as you treasure it up in your heart, that is going to be the means to guide you in the path of righteousness and to avoid that type of situation. And I think if we're all honest, we can say that times where sin becomes very strong and powerful in our lives and overcoming to us 
are those times typically where we're neglectful in those type of, type of things. So again, to go back to what I said at the beginning, we want to be proactive rather than reactive, right? We want to store up the word of God within us. As Psalm 119 verse 11 says, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? So that is what's guiding and directing us. So that aspect of memorization and meditation are two really helpful disciplines that the Lord has given us in order to fight uh, the sin that is within us and the sin that comes at us um, from this world. Let me try to conclude in in two minutes here and just say a couple thoughts here on um, memorization. A, a scriptural truth, for, for example, think of, think of sins that you're more tempted to be susceptible to. You want to have passages of scripture that can help you combat that. While all scripture memorization is profitable, um, a, a particular situation, if all you've got is John 3.16 in your mind, that's helpful, but it's not made for every situation that you're in and every temptation that you're facing. So think specifically about what what are susceptibilities that I have? What are certain sins that I'm more tempted to? Or what seems to be strong in my life right now? Find passages that speak about those types of of sins so that you can have those uh, words in your heart to to fight that. I think a great passage and a great example of that is what we see in Matthew 4 with Jesus um, parrying Satan's temptations there in the in the wilderness after the 40 days, right? Jesus is just not snatching verses at random and saying, um, well, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? I mean, he's specifically countering Satan's temptations with a specific word to meet that temptation and to fight it off. Uh, So that's something that's very helpful and important for us to learn. And thankfully, man, we have a wealth of resource with concordances and, you know, you jump on your device and you can just type in, you know, whatever sin it is that you're struggling with, and you get all kinds of different cross-references that will pop up and help you to fight that sin uh, that is within you. So let's learn from Jesus there about the necessity of not only having the word of God stored in our heart, but the, the right words for the right temptations that, that would come at us. Um, again, that memorization, what that's going to do is it's going to promote meditation. Memorization will promote meditation, right? Because we can't just sit down and read our Bibles all day long. We have other responsibilities that the Lord has given to us, but we can hide that word in our heart. So as we're going about our day, that word is still there. Even while we're working, while we're with the kids, while we're going to the store, whatever the case may be, that word we have hidden in our heart so that we can utilize it at the right time. Forrest. The memorization of Scripture is paramount. There's another learning that there is constant repetition. Yes. If you go back to the yeah. beginning of Proverbs, in verse chapter 1, hear my son, your father's instruction, <laughs> don't forsake the uh, teaching when he's teaching, he's praise, but it'll, it'll help you as sinners entice you. Yes. And as parents, it's something that we need to remember. Repetition is one of the best teaching methods. Yes. So Amen. along with uh, meditating and knowing the word and yep. hiding as yep. parents, yep. we can keep repeating things to 
our children. Right. Because we all realize we tell them something once, they're not going to remember it. That's right. It has to be repeated, and it's repeated again and again. Yeah. And we're the same way, right? You see that in yeah, Scripture that, yeah. hey, this is, you know, Peter says, it's not a burden for me to remind you of this again. As a matter of fact, as long as I'm with you, I'm going to keep saying it to stir up your mind so that when I'm gone, you'll remember it. Um, so, yeah, we are, we, as much as we would maybe hate to admit it, we are forgetful people daily. <laughs> we, we need to be reminded over and over again. One more comment, and then we'll close. Yep. Yeah. We try to put a lot of the same, like, you know how the fighter verses are consecutive? Yes. Yeah, yep. Um, so we try to memorize those, we try. Um, if we don't get those down, we at least read them over, like, we're brushing our teeth, yeah. brushing yeah. your hair, not kind of funny, but... <laughs> <laughs> it probably doesn't take too long for Jeremy, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Brushing his beard, his goatee. There you go. Right. So, but it's helpful. Yeah. Absolutely. Amen. Take advantage of every opportunity you have to hide the word of God in your heart. Okay, I need to close this. Thank you guys for your patience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this time of study, and, and Lord, what we can learn here about adultery in particular, but in sin, uh, about sin in general. And uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to hide your word in our hearts, and that we would ever have before us the reality of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, that our hearts would be enthralled with him so that when sin comes, we would see it for what it truly is, Lord. So help us, first and foremost, to make sure that our focus is there on just marveling and reveling in who he is, what he has done for us, who we are in him. And may that be the foundation from which joyful obedience and Holy Spirit-led fighting ensues. So we thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your many graces to us. Be with us now as we head into the service. Bless our time of fellowship and listening. Let us be attentive to the word. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.